This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. If you're there in John chapter 10, verse 22, say, I'm there, Pastor Jay. And here's what it says. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. And it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answers them, I told you already and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Last week we talked about Jesus being our good shepherd. And as sheep, we are called to know and discern the voice of God. Verse 28, and Jesus continues and he says, I gave them, meaning my sheep, my people, those called by my name, eternal life. How many are thankful for eternal life today? How many thankful that Jesus has saved your soul today? Amen. And they will never perish. It's settled. It's done. Okay? Now, some of you might be like, can you lose your salvation? Can you not lose your salvation? I like to just stick with Jesus' words. Jesus says this, they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. Last time I checked in the Greek, no one means no one. So let that be settled in your heart. Some of you, you wake up every day and you're like, man, I got to get saved again. No, you don't. The cross is sufficient for you. The work of Jesus is sufficient for you. It is finished. It is done. Let it be settled once and for all. If you have called upon the name of Jesus, the Bible says you can only do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you have called upon his name and professed him as Lord and you believe in your heart, confess your mouth, you will be saved. And since you didn't save yourself, you can't unsave yourself. I'm just going to leave that with you there today. So Jesus says this, my father who has given them to me, you see, it is the father working in and through the power of the Holy Spirit to deliver us unto the son who is our good shepherd. And he says, my father's actually given them to me and he's greater than all. And no one, he repeats it. I love this. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So in case you're not sure about Jesus's ability, He goes on to say, well, guess what? My father, no one could take anything out of his hand either in case you were still wondering or doubting. And then he makes this amazing capstone statement. He says, I and the father are one. I and the father are one. The title of my message today is this. Jesus is the unique one. Jesus is the unique one. Last week, we spoke about him being the good shepherd. The week before that, we talked about him being a chain breaker, the light of the world, the anointed one, the scandalous one, the truth teller. He is the unique one. There is no one like Jesus. And here he is again later in uh, the story at the time of a feast of dedication, not all that unlike this time of Thanksgiving where we come together to give thanks. And we're going to do that tonight. Praise God. And he's walking through the temple. And once again, a crowd has gathered around Jesus and they begin to press him again on this issue of him being the Messiah. As I mentioned at the beginning of this series, the central question that the writer of John sets out to answer is this, is Jesus the Christ? And if he is, what kind of Christ is he? Meaning what kind of Messiah is he? What's he like? That's what the theme of John is all about. And I think it's the question that all of us have to have settled in our hearts if we're going to understand who God wants to be in our lives as well. 
So they asked Jesus, are you the Christ? If so, tell us plainly, which is ironic because for the last 10 chapters, he's been pretty much making it pretty clear who he is, both in word and deed. But they haven't figured it out yet. They're a little fixed scold. Am I talking to anybody that's maybe a little fixed scold today? Maybe some of you watching online, you're not so sure yet. And Jesus needs to tell you again. And here we see it in John 9 and in chapter 10. Jesus keeps giving them answers over and over and over. He keeps performing miracles and signs and wonders. He turns the water to wine. Thank you, Jesus. He heals the leper. He cleanses the sick. He heals the sight of the blind guy. Remember the mud pie guy? He spits down into the ground. He makes some mud pies for the guy's eyes and he heals the blind. And he's giving them answer and answer and answer and answer as to who he is. And then he makes these claims like, I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the good shepherd. He starts making all these I am statements, basically claiming his equality with God the Father. And then in verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. So there's no doubt as to who Jesus believes he is. And his works and his miracles and his signs demonstrate it and have been for some time. So the problem isn't that Jesus hasn't told them. The problem is that they can't hear because they're spiritually deaf, and for many of them, they can't see because they're still spiritually blind. Jesus reiterates this when he says in verse 25, I told you and you do not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You're not among my sheep. You're not among those that the Father has already delivered unto me. Now, I will say this, only the Lord can judge the condition of the heart. The Bible says that man looks at the outward appearance of things. You and I look at the outward appearance of things. We try to guess and measure and figure out who's in and who's out, but only God can do that. And Jesus, recognizing that, says, only the Father can bear witness about me in this way, but you have still chosen not to believe. It doesn't say here that they were doubting. It says that they've made a decision not to believe. I've told you guys this before, those of you that have been with us for a while, that there's a big difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is, is the uncertainty that all of us wrestle with, right? The questions that we have, the areas where we haven't got answers, the areas where we're maybe concerned, we're not sure. And I always say this, wrestle, right? Question your doubts. Get in there with God and go like, God, what are you doing? What's happening? What is this all about? But unbelief is different and that unbelief is a conscientious decision that people make not to believe. Meaning even if I see Jesus heal the blind, I ain't gonna believe it. Even if Jesus does this and comes down from the sky and drops presents in my lap, I ain't gonna believe it, right? There's, there's something that darkens the heart about unbelief. Something that, that, that causes us not to be able to see. And that's what's happened here with the people. So they're blind and they're lost and they're pressing Jesus. And Jesus keeps saying, I've made it clear. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I and the Father are one. Are you with me today? So, in saying that he's one with the Father, Jesus is actually doing multiple things here. He's establishing his equality with God, and he's making known the uniqueness of who he is as the Christ, as the Messiah. And the reason that I'm pointing this out to you is because of what Jesus is about to say and do next. So buckle up. Are you guys ready? You got your, your seatbelts on? Here we go. Verse 31. So the Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you so many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself 
God. Make yourself God. And Jesus answered them and said, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father has consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, at least believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. And again, at this moment, they sought to arrest him but Jesus escaped from their hands. Okay, so there are probably a few things in this passage of scripture that probably immediately stand out to you in reading this that's gonna require us to do a little further digging. So I want you guys to put on your headlamps and grab your, your ax, and we're gonna go mine the word of God together, and hopefully you guys can follow me as I follow Jesus, amen? We're gonna go a little bit below the surface of what's transpiring here. We see another incidence of the people wanting to stone Jesus. They've already tried to do that already because of the statements he's made, and they make it quite clear. It's not because of his good works. It's not because of his good works, and I, and I would say to us that, that most people don't have problem with our good works, and they don't have problem when you love them and serve them. They have problems when you begin to make truth claims of exclusivity about who Jesus actually is. Is he the son of God or not? Because if he is, like C.S. Lewis says, we gotta make up our mind about what we believe. He can either be liar, lunatic, or Lord. Those are the only options that he leaves open to us. So Jesus, being a really good and patient rabbi and teacher here, is gonna provide a rebuttal. And he's going to appeal to a very particular and unusual psalm that most of us probably haven't read in the scriptures. And that psalm is Psalm 82. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Psalm 82. And Jesus begins by quoting it in verse 34. We've already read it. Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? Full stop. Did we hear that right, Jesus? What do you mean you are God's? We're like, whoa, hold on a second here. Time out. What is going on? Anybody else alarmed by this? Just me? Hopefully you're alarmed by this. What is he referring to here? Lowercase g gods. What the heck is going on? He continues in verse 35. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. So right away, I've got some questions about this text and I bet you do too. Whom? is Jesus referring to here as gods? Who are gods? And what does he mean to whom the word of God came? At this, at this point, most people, when they read this and interpret this, they assume that the you in verse 34 that God is speaking to are mortal men. And this is how some people have uh, traditionally and historically interpreted this verse, that God is somehow speaking about mortal men or human beings somehow becoming gods. This is how most Latter-day Saints would interpret this passage. But I think it's wrong, and I think it's problematic for a lot of reasons that I'm about to demonstrate. Additionally, some people interpret verse 34 as being metaphorical or non-literal, as if Jesus is using the term gods here in a way that's intended to mean spiritual or as like carriers of the divine or the divine image. Once again, I don't think that's actually faithful to the text into the context of Psalm 82 that Jesus is actually quoting from. So, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 82. 
And we're going to walk through this, as I mentioned, very slowly. But verses 1 through 8 are going to be what we're going to focus on. If you're there, say, I'm there, Pastor Jay. We're getting there, Pastor Jay. (laughs) Beginning in verse 1, let's get ready to rumble. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Verse three, give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Verse five, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Verse six, I said, you are God's sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall as one man, O princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now, for some of you that are reading this for the very first time, I hope that there's some phrases and some things that have immediately stood out to you, and I want to point them out. Phrases and terms like, let's put them up there, the divine council. How many of you have ever heard of the divine council before? Raise your hand if you've heard of the divine council. Maybe two hands, three hands in the room. The midst of the gods. What the heck's going on with that? Those who walk about in darkness. Who's that? Who's he referring to? Where the foundations of the earth are shaken. What could that be in reference to? And then how about the gods, the sons of the most high? Who are the sons? I thought there was only one son. And then nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall. Who is he talking to? What is going on? Help us, Lord Jesus. To understand what's going on here, as I said at the start, we need to think like biblical Israelites about this text. And for the sake of time today, I'm not going to have time to go through everything and address every concern that arises from Psalm 82, but I want to focus on a few things before I make my kind of primary point and our big idea today. The first thing I want to say is this. Biblical Israel has always believed in one God, and his name is Yahweh. Our English Bibles translate the word Yahweh into four little capitalized letters, L-O-R-D. Sometimes in your Bible, you'll see a capital L and then lowercase O-R-D, and then sometimes you'll see small caps, L-O-R-D. This is called the tetragrammatron, okay? I'm going to nerd out a little bit here. But what it's referring to is this divine name, the name Yahweh. Hebrew is not a consonantal language, okay? So there's no... Uh, there's no, excuse me, it's, it doesn't have any vowels. So what happens is a lot of times the Bible will translate or the biblical writers will translate the word Yahweh, Y-H-W-H into Lord, L-O-R-D. Some of you are like, what the heck? This is crazy. Here's what's neat. This occurs 2,000 times in the Bible, okay? So when, God, when uh, Moses asked God for his name, he gives him the name Yahweh, And there are a lot of things that can be said about the name Yahweh. The Jews and the ancient Hebrews found the name of God to be so holy that they wouldn't dare speak it. So they would write Y-H-W-H. Are you with me? And this has been the traditional understanding and translation of God's name for Israel. Okay? And this is one that they frequently use. As I said, 2,000 times. Chief among them is another name that shows up over and over and over in the Old Testament. And it's the name Elohim. Elohim. And the word Elohim and Elyon are used many times throughout the scriptures. And here's where it's going to get a little complicated and messy. The name Elohim 
is used both in the singular and the plural sense. In the singular and the plural sense. Now, for those of us that only know English, our grammar has particular rules that Hebrew doesn't have, okay? And so, in the Hebrew, a lot of words can be singular and plural. And this particular name of God, Elohim, shows up as both singular and plural, okay? So, here's where it's gonna get a little crazy. The term Elohim is not just used for God, it's also used for other spiritual entities and beings in the heavens, in the spiritual realm. In the Hebrew Bible, they're also known as Elohim. Yahweh is Elohim, all right? In fact, he's called Ha-Elohim, meaning the God, when compared to other lesser Elohim. And we see this in Deuteronomy chapter four. There are also Elohim that refer to the sons of the Most High, the sons of God, who are definitely not Yahweh. And we see this in Psalm 8 and Psalm 82 and Psalm 89. Demons, the Sedim, are often referred to as Elohim in Deuteronomy 32, 7. And the departed human dead show up as Elohim in 1 Samuel 28, verse 3. And then even the angels show up as Elohim in Genesis 35, 7. In the NIV, Psalm 8 actually says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you have made him a little lower than the oftentimes translated as angels, but the word is actually Elohim, that you have made him a little lower than the Elohim. So the term Elohim, for which we translate both God with a big G, we also use for the term little gods with a small g. And it's used in a variety of ways to convey different things about God and the spiritual realm. Are you guys still with me today? Okay. So as a result, Israel's understanding of the divine was far more vast and far more descriptive and far more supernatural than we typically assume. And this is hard for some of us as Western Christians because most of our understanding of God has been conditioned by the Enlightenment and by Protestantism and the Reformation and by a particular view of God and the Scriptures that's disconnected from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures. And the problem is then we try to interpret the New Testament, which is mostly the Old Testament repackaged, and we have no clue what's going on. And so as a result, we do things that are unhelpful in that we, we throw out the Old Testament, we try to just be faithful in the New Testament, and then we don't know why we're doing what we're doing and what means what and how these things show up in all these strange and odd ways, and we're perplexed. As biblical Christians, we need to affirm both the Old and the New Testament because they both declare the glory of God and they declare the glory of what he's created and declare the glory of his heavenly order and his specter and his glory and all the, 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 the wonder that God is and then pointing to the culmination of that, which is Jesus Christ, the Son. Now, for some of you here today, this isn't really news. This is like, okay, I'm with you so far. But some of you, you guys might be like, what in the world are we talking about? Like, what is this Yahweh, Elohim, all these crazy, like, angelic and spiritual divine beings? What is going on? Hang with me, okay? Just hang with me. So the psalmist says in Psalm 82 that Elohim, with a biggie, I'm just going to refer to him as biggie Elohim, has taken his place in the divine council. What in the world is the divine council? Well, let me give you guys just a simple definition. Let's put it up there. The divine council is the heavenly court or realm where God, big Elohim, also referred to as Elyon, is enthroned above the earth where other spirit beings have access and go before him to consult with him and to execute his will. Or in the case of fallen angels and demons, transgress against him and rebel against it. Are you with me? So, 
We might even say this is the, this is the, the place, the heavenly place where his throne uh, room resides. And this concept of the divine council actually appears all throughout scripture. It's found in the Psalms, and it's particularly found in the book of Job. And we won't have time to get into the book of Job today. But if you want, read Job chapter 1, and it's a great picture of this divine council. So back to Psalm 82. God, which we'll refer to as Big Elohim, has appeared in the center of his divine council, in the midst of the gods, which I'll now refer to as the little E Elohim, of whom he is actually about to render judgment. And this is critical because he's not rendering judgment upon human beings here. And this is often how we read Psalm 82, as if God is judging the rulers of the earth. He's judging the Elohim. And what the text later refers to as the sons of the Most High. He says this to them, beginning in verse two. How long will you judge unjustly? Let's put it up there. There it is. Nope. Go back. Next slide. Nope. Go back. Go back. Go back again. Oh, we don't have it. Okay. Verse two. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Psalms. 82 here. Verse three, give justice to the weak and the fathers maintain the right of, an, of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Period. End quotation marks. And then he provides commentary on the Elohim. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. Verse six, and so I said, you are God's little e Elohim. Sons, Bene Elohim, of the Most High, Elyon, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Do you see in the parentheses here, I've provided the Hebrew words, you are God's Elohim, sons of the Most High, Elyon, all of you like men, Adam, which is the Hebrew word for man or, or humankind. It's, it's where we see Adam and Eve. It's Adam and Adama. Like men, you shall die like Adam, you shall die and fall as one Adam, O princes. Therefore arise, O God, Elohim. Big, singular term, Elohim, not plural, singular. Judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now, if God is speaking to men here, mortal men, why would he need to say in his judgment, you are gods, all of you, and you will, like men, surely die? If they're already men, of course they're gonna die. And that's a redundant point, and it's obvious because that's what humans do. We die. And there's no need for God to render this kind of judgment. But when you look at the Hebrew, it becomes pretty clear. You are God's, next slide, Elohim. Nope, keep it right here. You are God's Elohim, and you will die like Adam. Okay, so his audience is clear. He's not speaking to men, which are Adam, but rather to the spirit or divine heavenly beings known as Elohim. And this makes sense because where is all this happening? Is it happening on earth? No, it's happening in the midst of the divine council, which is where? As I've already pointed out, it's in the heavens. Are you still with me? So the scope of Psalm 82, some of you guys are like, okay, this is getting weird. So the scope of Psalm 82, I want you guys to have this firmly established in your heart, was not written to men, but to the Elohim. And this thought hopefully settled Let's turn back to the Gospel of John. Now, when Jesus refers to this in his rebuttal by responding to them, saying that he's not a, more, a mere mortal man who makes himself out to be God, what does Jesus do? He goes right to Psalm 82. He brings them 
front and center with God in the midst of his divine counsel, not his earthly counsel, not amongst men. Because what's being put on trial here? They're accusing Jesus of making himself out to be a deity, out to be God, out to be divine. And so Jesus says, have you not heard? Have you not seen? Do you not remember the divine counsel? Do you not understand the great Elohim? And he brings them into the context of that to do what? To defend his own deity and identity as being one with the Father. So Jesus takes them backwards to take them forwards, knowing that they're going to be familiar with the divine counsel and these lesser little Elohim. He's basically saying, listen, you're aware of these gods, of these Elohim, but I'm here to declare to you that I am Elohim, Yahweh himself. The Father and I are one. And just like that, Jesus drops this amazing theological hammer on them. And he's using the backdrop of this psalm that was well known to them to establish and declare once again his unique status as being one with the Father. He claims his divine authority. He claims his equality. And he claims his uniqueness as God, as Elohim. Why would Jesus use this text out of all the texts that Jesus could use to prove his divinity? Why would he do that? Why would he do this? Well, if Psalm 82 was written about human beings, it wouldn't exactly be a great text to use in his rebuttal, right? If someone says, you're not, you're not a God, Jesus, you're just making yourself out to be a God, you wouldn't then go find the one scripture that's written about human beings being judged. No, you'd find the one that's actually written about the divine. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. So, if we can't see what Jesus is saying in light of Psalm 82, then we'll never understand what he means by you are gods. You are gods is not the men. It's the Elohim. It's the little e Elohim of Psalm 82. And if we don't know this and understand this, how are we gonna rightly interpret what Jesus is doing here? We're gonna think Jesus is saying something that Jesus is definitely not saying. That we as human beings can somehow become gods. Are you tracking? That's obviously false, which is why we need to know our Bible. Unfortunately, if you don't know Psalm 82 and you don't understand the context and you read it and then someone comes along and, and adds some what sounds like familiar language, you go, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, didn't somebody say something about this or something like that? And then someone comes along and builds a whole new theology and, and, and writes a whole other book and starts to create all this chaos, confusion in the lives of so many people. And many of them are your friends and your neighbors and your family. All because of what? Bad interpretation. In the theological world, we call it bad hermeneutics. So we need to know our Bible. The reason the Jews are so upset with Jesus is because they know exactly what Jesus is saying here. They knew Torah. They knew the Psalms. Most of them had to have it committed to memory by the time they were 13, 14, 15 years of age. They knew exactly what Jesus was doing. They understood it. And they know that Jesus is making this now outrageous claim of being uniquely and equally God. There's no doubt about it. Some people criticize Christians and say, well, did Jesus actually say, yeah, he, he did. He did not give us any room to doubt and or think otherwise about the claims that he makes about being uniquely God because Jesus is the unique one. And he's the Lord of the council himself. As a result, they're deeply offended 
And what do they want to do? They want to arrest Jesus because they know what this means for their little kingdom and rule, that what can be shaken is now being shaken. Which brings me to my final point and kind of the big idea for us today. You and I are not God. We are not gods and will never be gods. We are but mortal men and women. I think the majority of our problems in this world happen when we posture ourselves as gods, when we try to rule over people like gods and establish our own little kingdoms like gods, when we worship people and other things like gods. And we see this all the time in our culture, don't we? I think we, we make celebrities into gods and we bow down at their feet and we worship them and we idolize them. We emulate them. We try to look like them. We get the Nikes like them. We want to dress like them. We follow them online on Instagram and Facebook and TikTok and Twitter. And we're, we're just obsessed. And we make people out to be gods that they were never intended to be nor could ever be because there is only one God. His name is Elohim. His name is El Yan. His name is Yahweh. His name is Jesus. And if there's nothing else that you get from this message, it's this. We are not gods, and we're not in the best position to rule our lives like gods. And for some of us, that has been our story of trying to rule and reign over our own little kingdoms and our own little worlds. And we fail time and time again because... And in reality, there is only one Lord of the council. There is only one who sits above the earth. There is only one who is worthy, uniquely worthy of all our worship. And it's not LeBron James. <laughs> Come on. It's not Joe Biden. It's not Elvis Presley. Thank you, Lori. <laughs> It's not your mom, it's not your dad, it's not your kids. It's not even money or fame or fortune. It's Jesus. Jesus is the rescuer and the redeemer and Lord. He is uniquely God because he is uniquely one with the Father. Now, as Christians, we believe in this, this principle of three and one. God is both one and three, three and one. How does that work? I don't know but I know it works because he's revealed himself that way. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he's still one. Hear, O Israel, our God is one. It's a prayer that the Jews pray every day of their lives. It's called the Shema. Considered to be one of the most holy prayers. What is it acknowledging? There's no one like him. There's no one like him. In all the heavens, amongst the angels, and the living creatures, right? You're like, whoa, I forgot about those. Yeah, what about the, the eyeball guy with all the eyes and the wings and all the cherubim and seraphim and the Elohim, these, these, these lesser Elohim? And then you've got all the saints, you've got the elders, and what are they doing? They're worshiping the one that's on the throne. They're casting their crown at his feet. They're saying, you alone are worthy of our worship. That's why here on earth, there's a battle going on. It's for our worship. Who's going to get your worship? Somebody is. Something is. When we say that God alone is worthy of our worship, we're saying he's holy, which means there's no one like him. He's unique. He's the unique one. 
And because he's holy, he alone is worthy of our praise. Above all other gods and idols and created things, he alone is worthy of our worship. This week as we head into Thanksgiving, it's a time where we traditionally as believers recalibrate our hearts in thanks, in the, the art of giving thanks, of, of being grateful. Some of you guys do those gratitude challenges. For like 30 days, you gotta like give gratitude and thanks. You gotta be thankful. I think that's great. But this week is especially a time where we come in to alignment with all the things that we have to be grateful for. I don't know about you, but I've got so much to be thankful for. We have so much to be grateful for. And I think that this week, if we could just take time to carve out moments where we could be filled with awe and wonder at who God is and, and allow our hearts to become full with thanks, that we'd see the presence of God fill us and overflow in our lives. And we're gonna do this tonight. We're gonna come together and, and thanks. So we're gonna offer up just a sound and expression of worship that only the body of Christ on this earth can give. We're gonna give Jesus praise that's worthy a lamb that has been slain. Amen? And we're gonna do this together tonight. You know, as I mentioned, the Mid Valley Performing Arts Center. We're gonna come together with other believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, some that you may know, some that you may not know. And we're gonna declare the goodness of God and, and his lordship over this valley. Can I tell you something? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Some of us are like, it's a battle. It's, yes, there's a battle going on. But make no mistake, we're on the winning side. We serve a triumphant, risen warrior king who is exercising his rule and his authority over every enemy until he makes all of his enemies under his feet. It's his kingdom that we are here advancing. It's his kingdom that we're proclaiming the good news of the gospel, the kingdom of Jesus. He says it's his kingdom that will know no end. And we are here advancing it every time we declare the name of Jesus, every time we pray, every time we worship, every time we lift up holy hands without wrath or doubt, every time we, we give God thanks for something. You know what I like to do? I like to just drive all over the city and just pray over people and give God thanks for what he's doing in the lives of my friends and family. And yes, even those that don't know him yet. We just come into alignment with what he's doing, what he's advancing. You know how powerful that is? And here we are, we think we're just, you know, going through the motions, singing a few songs. No, we are declaring truth over an area that needs truth, over people's lives who need truth. The Bible says that we tear down imaginations and things that exalt themselves against the mind of Christ in Jesus. How do we do that? With our thanksgiving, with our praise. When we lift up our hands, we're doing what the Bible says is todah. It's the Hebrew word for, for shouting thanks and giving thanks. It's the, the word that comes from casting stones or arrows. It's what David did when he cast his praise into the face of that giant. It's what we do when we cast our praise into the face of our giants. We start declaring Torah. We start lifting up thanks. We start allowing the, the kingdom of God to be advanced in our worship. Not just on Sunday, but come on, Monday through Saturday as well, church. That's why I want to tell you today, your worship is powerful. There is more going on in the unseen than what we see here on earth. This divine counsel and all this amazing imagery of what's happening all around us. Can you imagine with me that when we as, ch as the church, as the saints, as the people of God step into that, we join in that sound. See, it's not just however many are, are here today worshiping. It's us with the saints all over the world and in eternity who are already casting down their crowns saying, worthy, 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 holy, holy, holy. And that's powerful. 
And that's more powerful than any politician. Come on. It's more powerful than any rock star. It's more powerful than anything that you can say or confess over your life. And that's why I'm so passionate about this. And that's why as a church, we're so passionate about worship because we know what it's doing, not just in us, but in this region. It's interesting to me that where God wants there to be true worship, there will always be a counterfeit. There will always be a counterfeit lurking close by, just trying to get people off course. No, 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 you're God's. You're God's. And actually, you're, you're, best, you know, you're the best in charge of your life. No, we're not. We're not. But in worship, when we come and say, no, we're, we're not worthy, but we know the one who is worthy, worthy of all praise, worthy of all thanks, worthy of all adoration and glory. To him be all the glory and the kingdom and the power forever. And that's what we do every time we pray and every time we worship. Tonight, we're also going to hear some amazing testimonies of how God's been working in the lives of people, uh, both here in this church and throughout the valley. And I promise you this, it will encourage you in your faith. If you are like at a place where you've just been kind of stale, maybe a little dry and crispy around the edges, and following Jesus for a while, but things have gotten a little stale, come tonight and let the Holy Spirit just breathe fresh fire on your worship, fresh fire on your offering, amen. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at courageouschurch.com.